Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 43rd episode of our podcast, I interviewed Justin Robinson, co-founder and SVP of New Business at Drizzly. Shortly after graduating from Boston College, Justin started Drizzly with his two co-founders, Nick and Corey Rellis. They saw an opportunity to build a company in a relatively untapped area of e-commerce, that being the home delivery of beer, wine, and liquor. Today, Drizzly is available across 101 markets, and the company has raised $35 million in venture funding. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like the aha moment behind starting Drizzly, the early days of the company which was spent working in a liquor store to learn the ins and outs of the industry, how they were able to initially attract consumers and build a company in a highly regulated industry, why they are poised to win over Amazon, advice for first-time entrepreneurs who are raising capital, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note, are you hiring? If you are, then you need to check out our biz pages. It is a hiring solution which gives you exclusive access to our job board, content, and more. It helps keep your company top of mind with our highly targeted audience of professionals in the tech industry. If you're interested in hearing more, send an email to info at and I'll reply back. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Justin. Justin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right. So the no-brainer first question that I have to ask you, uh, obviously as a co-founder of Drizzly, what's your drink of choice? Yeah. So uh, drink of choice. It's changed over the years since we started Drizzly six years ago. But um, visiting Ireland, Dublin, about a year ago, uh, I fell in love with Guinness there and have since... uh, pretty much stuck to Guinness is my drink of choice. So, uh, it's definitely Guinness these days, solid beer, lighter than people expect it to be. And, uh, both in terms of calories and ABV. So you can, you know, have a couple and, um, you know, still enjoy the beer. So Guinness, that's, that's the one. And so you kind of fell in love again when you went over there. Is that what happened? Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, new Guinness, you know, my early twenties kind of thing, but when you visit, did you go to the factory, uh, I guess? Like, yeah, when you okay. visit Dublin and then when you have Guinness in Ireland, it truly yeah. does taste different and better. Um, and so I, I, I fell in love with it. And I also started to realize, oh my goodness, it's only, I think like 125 calories. It's a 4.5% ABV beer. So it's not this like big heavy thing that you think it is when you look at it in the glass, it's actually really drinkable. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when it became, you know, forget about Coors Light and, and others like it, it became Guinness. Yeah. And it's amazing when you have one and when you're at the top of the, the Guinness factory and you have that 360 degree panoramic view of Dublin. It's phenomenal. And then, and then it's equally as unbelievable when you go to bars in Dublin and it tastes almost as good as it did at the brewery itself. That That's mm-hmm. when I was really hooked, I think. The one thing that I was surprised, so I made a trip to Dublin for a bachelor party years and years ago now, but mm-hmm. I was surprised at how many people drank Budweiser there. Yeah. I mean, the craft industry abroad is essentially non-existent. So there are only really the big the big brands and Budweiser obviously being one of those. Um, yeah, definitely makes it into the bar. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I always like to go way back. So where'd you grow up? What'd your parents do for work? Let's get some foundation stuff. Yeah. So I grew up uh, in the beautifully hot city of Phoenix, Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father was in uh, higher education software 
sales for his whole career. So he was selling um, an open source uh, equivalent to Blackboard, if you know what Blackboard I is. Do. Sort of a, yep, a system for uh, for universities. So uh, I sort of had some exposure to to tech and um, to the software world while I was growing up in Phoenix. Uh, I went to a Jesuit uh, sort of Catholic high school there. Uh, fell in love with that style of education. Um, and when applying to schools, BC, Boston College, was the only school I applied to in Boston. But uh, got in off the wait list, which, um, you know, really sort of took some effort uh, from my part. <laughs> and uh, thankfully got in and uh, came to Boston in 2007. Uh, wow. to go to BC. Packed your bags, like going to Boston. Couldn't wait to get out of 120 degree heat uh, and arrive in, you know, zero degree weather and <laughs> snow. So one extreme to the other. Exactly. So um, now you decided, did you go to school actually majoring into finance or was that something that you ultimately fell into and decided later? Yeah. So I started actually as a math major mm -hmm. um, in the arts and sciences school at BC. Uh, I was, I was a pretty, sort of solid math student and that's where I was most comfortable. And by my by the end of my freshman year, I kind of got coaxed into BC has a really solid undergrad business school and the finance program in particular at the time was ranked like number one or two in the country. So I was like, why not try to transfer into the, you know, top of the top schools and and I had heard from folks that graduated that the finance program was really a solid one. So um I transferred after my freshman year uh, into the school of management and became a finance major. Hmm. Let's talk about the foundation story of Drizzly because, um, the way I understand the story, it's not like you graduated from college and like, did you have a, a job after college or you guys went straight to building a company, right? Or what? No, so I was, I graduated, um, in 2011 and I went to work for a, a concert promotion company in New England actually called Envy Concepts, which is essentially the biggest competitor to Live Nation uh, in New England. Okay. And I was throwing shows at uh, both college campuses and just venues around New England. Um, so that was my first job out of school. And Nick, who's, uh, who's my co-founder uh, of Drizzly, he uh, graduated 2012. So he was still in school when we came to kind of found the idea for Drizzly. So the, the aha moment, what was that moment where you're like, wait, there's an opportunity here? Yeah. So I would say the aha moment was the first time that we had communicated about the concept of, uh, of online beer, wine and spirits in, in of delivery. So like I said, he was a year behind me. We were actually working on the senior booze cruise for BC students, which <laughs> we had, I had started my senior year, every school in the city had some concept of a, you know, senior cruise where you go out on the Harbor and on one of those boats. And, you know, BC didn't have that concept because it's a Jesuit Catholic university and they didn't want to, you know, that that was not in their code right. of conduct, I guess. I don't know what you want to say, but, uh, so we, that was an opportunity. I started at my senior year the next year, Nick texted me. He's like, Hey, I heard this cruise did pretty well. Uh, I heard you made some money. Can we, uh, 
like can, let's run it you and me for my class. So it was actually while working on that booze cruise, um, in about March of 2012 that he texted me, Hey, uh, you know, I just got pizza delivered. Why can't I get beer delivered? And I would say like, there were plenty of mini aha moments along the way, but the simple, you know, I responded to him saying, cause it's illegal. I assumed it was. Right. And then when we stayed up all night researching the Massachusetts liquor code, realized that it's perfectly legal. No one had done it appropriately. No one had created a system by which retailers do the deliveries um, in fulfillment of product themselves and that they process payments in full. Once we realized no one had created the right system, that's when we said, Jesus, this is a huge opportunity. No one's selling alcohol online the right way. Let's see if we can go after it. So were there already attempts of doing it like with different business models, like just one mothership, I'm going to sell beer, liquor, spirits to consumers or? Yeah. So previous attempts that we could, that we had found, um, all built super unsophisticated, unsophisticated websites and would employ people to go pick up booze from the liquor stores and deliver it themselves, mm -hmm. which meant two things. One, it was illegal in most States. So they were operating illegally Two, um, there's this whole extra cost built into that business model where if you're going to have, you know, another person off the street, go pick up the product from a liquor store and deliver it, you know, you're going to have to charge 10, $15 delivery fees in order to service the customer, make it a profitable business. And we knew that that delivery fee was going to be simply too high for customers to want a stomach. It needs to be closer to five bucks in order to do that. We need the liquor stores to do the deliveries themselves. So there've been previous attempts and, and we knew that, you know, one, the models that they were operating under were, were illegal across most of the country and two cost prohibitive to consumers. So uh, kudos to you guys, right? So I just look back when I was, you know, 22, 23 years old and, you know, you have these ideas, but uh, to do the level of upfront due diligence you did around you know, reviewing the, you know, the, the liquor code, the uh, previous business models that failed to figure out this was just done like wrong. Um, like at what point did you decide, wow, we're going to build a company and how did you actually do that? Like, I mean, that, that's pretty bold. Yeah. So I, I mean, you know, advice that I always give to recent grads or people that are about to graduate that have some concept of some sort of business ideas, like that is the best time to try to go do it mm -hmm. is when, you know, you're new in your career, you, you know, you don't have generally don't have families that you have to support this that, and the other, like this is the time to go after it. So for me, it was easy. Like I had always sort of had little side businesses in college and then right after school. So for me to, to, to take the leap and I quit my job. I actually went to go teach tennis. I played tennis in school, uh, teach tennis part-time and on the weekends to, to pay for rent. And, um, Nick was just finishing up school for, for him. It was a total no brainer. Uh, you know, you have to be willing to take that risk if you really want to start a business at some point in your life and no better time than when you're 22, as far as I'm concerned to take that leap. And how'd you get started? I mean, I think, um, the early days of, you know, I would think a problem for most startups with this type of industry is the ID verification, right? So 
the legal ramifications, you know, obviously people, uh, if you're selling alcohol, you got to make sure that you're selling them to selling it to, you know, people of age. So, so how'd you overcome that? Yeah. So we spent a lot of time before launching the product, understanding the industry <clears throat> as deeply as we could. And all of our conversations with retailers led us to a place where they would say, look, we understand that we should probably be online. We understand that delivery is probably going to happen. Um, this was at the time that Uber was just sort of coming along, you know, Food or Grubhub, other, others who were sort of really um, making some serious strides in, uh, in food delivery and in, you know, delivery of people. Like to sell that concept to them made some sense where they would always stop is they would say, but how am I going to, you know, I, at the end of the day, I'm on the hook. If I'm delivering the product, it's my employee and I get to the door, how am I going to be certain that that person is 21? So that was an early hurdle that we knew if we were going to be serious about this business, we had to overcome. Um, around BC, we knew there were several locations where fake IDs simply didn't work. So, uh, not through experience, just through, <laughs> so we would go into, we went into one of those stores and found out that the system that was powering their ID verification was run by a company called advanced ID detection. Mm -hmm. And that company was based out in Medway. I called them nonstop for three weeks to try to say like, Hey, we, you know, we have this idea around delivery. We need your, some concept, some version of your software to power our ID verification so that retailers will feel comfortable with Drizzly. Eventually got in touch with them, went out there. They had this system that was um, server-based. So it was a locally hosted system where you would stick your ID into a scanning device, which if you've ever been to like legal seafood on the in the seaport, they have it. Mm -hmm. um, like Tia's has it. There's a lot of bars, restaurants, liquor stores that have the system. Scans the ID, takes a 600 DPI image of the front and back of that ID and runs pattern matching on the ID all locally to determine whether or not it's real or fake. We said, hey, why don't we take that, so that system, put that software, obviously, in the cloud. Let's take a picture using the ID, using the camera on the phone and see if we can't, um, using the mobile device, verify IDs. So, uh, we, we, we were able to do that back in 2012 and we sort of built our first version of the ID of our ID verification system, um, with a company that all of the liquor stores in Boston were already familiar with being good at ID verification. That was a huge hurdle in that company and that product that we sort of incubated and, and built in the early days actually ended up becoming confirm.io, which is a company in town. Um, that Facebook bought, uh, in the beginning of this year. So, and how did you fund all this initially? Like, I mean, were you able to raise money from angels? Like, how did you get started? I know yeah. you're hustling and doing tennis lessons to pay the, the rent, but you know, when you started to form a company and had to like maybe, you know, pay bills, right. Yeah. Um, you know, legal fees, whatever. Totally. So first, the, the reason I brought up the boost cruise, that was our initial, initial seed funding. So we made $25,000 wow. off that boost cruise. It's a profitable venture. hundred <laughs> percent. It's still running today, believe it or not. Um, and folks are still making money off of it. So that was, uh, that was our initial seed funding. Nick and I both went to our parents and said, look, you know, this is a uh, once in a lifetime opportunity. We, th we think we're onto something. So we got about $50,000 uh, 
loaned each over the course of a year to try to get the business off the ground. Um, and you know, we didn't pay ourselves like all that 125 K essentially went to the business. It went to paying legal fees. It went to marketing. It went to selling stores. And we got to a point in 2013, right after we had launched, where we were pretty cash strapped. And, and, um, thankfully at that point, had raised uh, another small round from who became our third co-founder, and he's now the CEO, Corey, uh, who gave us a little a little loan um, to get us through 2013. So collectively, we'd raised from you know our families and through other means uh, about 150k over the course of a year and a half to get the business off the ground. And how did you get your first, you know? liquor store that was like, yes, we believe in you guys. We're going to do this. And what was that process like of getting, you know, someone signed up to be part of your platform? Yeah. So we went to a trade show in October of 2012 called Mass Pack, which is where every liquor store in uh, Massachusetts goes to kind of learn about new products, new technology, et cetera, et cetera. We had, uh, you know, with our kind of cash strapped budget, I think it was like a $2,000 fee to get a booth um, at that trade show. And we're at this trade show and it's me and Nick and we've got a, uh, we've got a a banner behind us with just, it's looks terrible and it's, you know, in like times new Roman font and it's got like an iPhone um, on it (laughs) with like dead alcohol delivered and then we've got. Oh, was it called Drizzly then? Like it was like, called Drizzly. Yeah. Come up with that name, just quick side. Yeah, we so we wrote uh, in our first office, which was on North Beacon Street in in Water, uh, close to Watertown, close to where Martinetti Liquor used to be in the IHOP and stuff over there. Um, we had like a hundred dollar a month office that we were renting, and it had white walls that we would we didn't have idea paint or whiteboards. We would literally write on these walls and then paint over them later. So that was ridiculous in itself, but we wrote about 20 names on the wall. We knew we didn't want it to say, you know, beer delivery, liquor. We didn't want to use the words associated with the product. We wanted to come up with a sort of new two syllable word that didn't mean anything yet, but you could surmise might mean something. And so we wrote a whole bunch of names up there. Keg me was our favorite early on, believe it or not. So that's what we thought it was going to be. But, um, so showed that list of names to, uh, our friends and to each of our moms actually. And our moms both said we like Drizzly. Our friends said we like Drizzly. So mm. it's kind of a, if this works across generations, let's go with it. So it. not a ton of science there, but so we're at this trade show, Drizzly, that's the name of the company to our right. We've got, um, Bacardi who's just got a fully decked out booth with gray goose and, and, Smear and uh and Bacardi and all this swag and like you could take shots you could you know try the product like it was this huge booth to our left was like Anheuser Busch same thing you know all this and we're literally in between between these giants giants with like every giveaway that they could muster up to give to people and we had a white table with two iPhones and a Times (laughs) Roman banner behind us that said you know get alcohol delivered or alcohol liquor store at your fingertips, I think is, was the the phrase back then. And just one little iPhone on the banner. And we had like a line around the corner, you know, talking to us and that waiting awesome. to talk to us. And cause they didn't need to go talk to Bacardi or to, you yeah. know, they were interested in the tech. So it was from that, that we met our first retailer. His name is uh, David Gordon. Uh, he runs a chain of stores called Gordon's Liquors up here. Gordon's Fine Wine and Spirits. Um, and he gave us the opportunity to 
work in his store in Watertown, um, which was right on the pike and on Storo. So we could deliver to sort of as much of the city as we needed to in the early days. He gave us the opportunity to essentially work at that store, which meant we could do deliveries because we were employees of the liquor store. And we would, we learned a lot about the business working in this liquor store for six months. And we said to David, look, we're not going to charge you. You don't have to pay us. Um, you know, just let us incubate this thing out of the back of your store. So we, we worked there for six months and really got to understand the business from the ground up. We understood what consumers were looking for. We understood how, you know, what a retailer cared about, what retailer managers cared about, what the staff cared about. We understood what distributors cared about and, um, and suppliers. And so we really got like a deep understanding of the business working in the store for six months, doing the few deliveries that we had back in the day. Um, oh, wait, so you were like working the cashier, like oh, yeah. cash oh, yeah. on stocking shelves, oh, like oh, everything. People come in and say, Hey, I'm looking for, you know, uh, uh, Pino, you know, that I think is between this price range. Can you help me out? And we, you know, so we learned the business literally from, from the ground up. And at what point did you get a, a website up and running or the app in the app store? Like when was your first like consumer delivery, like an order place? And you were like, someone just ordered. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, I'll tell the story of the first user without using her name. Cause it was a funny one. So we, um, David agreed to be the first in Gordon's agreed to be the first retailer in, uh, January of 2013. So we sprinted to finish the app. So we were just on iOS in the beginning, um, and got that finished by the middle of February of 2013. And we did our first deliveries to our, you know, friends and family to just see if the system would work on February 22nd, I believe it was 2013. Um, our first order, like our organic order though, I'll never forget. We had a small little mention in a, uh, Boston, O like, you know, top college startups to pay attention to that are launching, um, written by Lauren Landry, who I still like thank for her writing this, you know, back in the day. Yeah. Uh, and who John Gallagher from BC told, told her about us. So yeah, I'm sure you would know those names. So, um, so she wrote this little thing, you know, started to watch out for. And so we're sitting in the store, like, I wonder if this is going to generate any organic orders. We've never had anyone organically order from us before. And we're in, in the store in Watertown and an order comes in from a name that I didn't recognize. And I show it to Nick, you know, my co-founder and he's like, I don't know who that is. And we both were like, Oh my God, this, go the first, this is the first one. <laughs> she happened to live exactly seven minutes from the store in, uh, over in Brighton. So she could have been anywhere in Boston. She happened to be seven minutes away and we pack it up. I get in the car and I sprint over there. This delivery took, it was still probably like our fastest, you know, us <laughs> delivery to date. It took us like nine minutes and we were there and she's like, she <laughs> like, Oh my God. She was like, I was about to go get in the shower. Like I thought I had 40 minutes before you, you're here already. Like, right. what is this? How did this come to be? And you know, my face was, I'm just so happy that you ordered from us. You have no idea. <laughs> like, but I'm trying to play it cool. You know, yeah, like, uh, uh, thank, thanks for ordering. where'd you hear about us? And she had read that article and all that. So, um, that was the first order, but you know, that article, you know, resulted in many, many more orders, but it, it, you know, after doing that first organic delivery, talk about another aha moment. It was clear that this is a service that people want, that people need. She got home from a long day of work. 
She didn't want to go to the liquor store. That was, you know, she had to get in her car, drive for 10 minutes, come back. Mm -hmm. So, um, it became really evident that this was something that was going to work. So, so, so what is the business model for Drizzly? Like, like how do you guys actually make money? Yeah. So the, uh, our primary revenue stream is through retailers. So we charge retailers, uh, depending on the state, a per order fee, uh, in some states it can be a percent of sales, uh, for every incremental order that we drive to their business, which they're happy to pay because, you know, they don't generally have their own websites. And if they do, they're not optimized. They're not going to work that well. So, uh, retailers is our primary source of revenue. And then we also, um, sell sort of data and consulting services to big brands. So we work with, you know, Tito's and Anheuser-Busch and Diageo and some of the large brands in the country to help them understand their customers better. Cause we have a really unique and interesting data set, um, for these brands that they've never really had access to before. So those are the two primary ways. And what's your scale now? I mean, fast forward to today, like what's the scale of Drizzly and like markets you service and any other data you can share? Yeah. So we're in over a hundred markets, uh, which has been been a, a lot of fun to uh, to sort of see us grow over the last six years. Um, and in terms of sort of user order numbers, so we did last year we we did our our millionth order, um, wow. and I forget which month that was in, but we can we can find that for you. But um, yeah, now, and now we're kind of growing exponentially. So suffice to say, we've done many more millions of orders since that order. So, um, uh, yeah, so it's, it's been quite the ride. And it, is it like each state or each market? Like, how do you expand? Like, I assume there's different regulations, laws in each state or market that you enter. So how do you, you know, continue to build that out? That must be like a, a pretty long process just to get established in all these new markets. Yeah. So it's a lot of what I spent um, the first two to three years of the business on. So we took a tact that at the time, and even still it is a little taboo where, uh, you know, in 2013, 2014, Uber was getting a lot of praise for asking for forgiveness, not asking for permission when they entered a market. Sure. We took the tact of, we're dealing with a product here that is harmful. That's dangerous. It's liquor. If it gets in the wrong hands, if you consume too much, like it really is a problem. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we didn't take that responsibility lightly. So for every market that we've gone into, we hire local counsel and we sit down with the regulatory board of that state and, because it is a state by state um, regulatory framework for alcohol. Like every state is essentially a different country. So we sit down with every state regulator and we say, here's the Drizzly business model. You know, uh, will this work in your state? We think it will. Like we've, we've created a model by which we're not processing any payments. The liquor store is processing payments in full and we're not doing deliveries. The retailer is, is completely in, uh, responsible for fulfillment. Does that work in your state? And, um, to date, we haven't run into any issues and that that model has served us well across the country and frankly has been one that some of our competitors have struggled with. Uh, and so because again, we don't hold inventory or process payments and we don't do delivery, um, we've been able to scale across the country pretty quickly. And I would say that's one of the key pieces of your business model in terms of competition, that the barrier to entry is, 
very high. It reminds me of pill pack, right? To get authorized to just, you know, to uh, ship drugs to different states, you need to get approved, right? So to go state by state, like they <coughs> did, I mean, the barrier to entry, it's not like you can just set up an online pharmacy and start um, you know, distributing drugs to all these states. You got to get approval. So same thing with your business. So that must alleviate a lot of the uh, fast followers trying to enter the business. 100%. It's a, it is a extreme, you know, if we were just selling t-shirts or this, like we wouldn't exist, right? There are yeah. plenty of other uh, e-commerce businesses that can fulfill those needs. But in this incredibly regulated market, we absolutely have had an opportunity. And what's funny is, I mean, we sort of say this all the time, like Boston's become a little consumer regulated industry hub between PillPack, us, DraftKings. Like there are a number, you know, and then all the, the, the biotech, like there's a, there is a, there's a lot of really interesting consumer facing uh, businesses here that are built in regulated industries. And we've been fortunate enough to be one of them. Now, obviously the, 800 pound gorilla that everyone worries about regardless of industry is Amazon. So what, what is Amazon doing in this space? And like, you know, how do you fend off the giant? Yeah. So, so yeah, so there, they have definitely dipped their toe in alcohol as they've dipped their toe in every single industry in the world, right? Like mm -hmm. it's crazy. It's so unbelievable the power that they've been able to, you know, if you sell, if you sell anything or if you, stream anything or if you if you <laughs> offer a tech a technological product to a consumer people are talking about amazon it is absolutely wild and for good reason i mean they're they are they are gaining market share like crazy um so they've dipped their toe in alcohol they as a result of their whole foods acquisition they have cemented themselves as a retailer so they own uh 400 however many licenses that is around the country which means that they're going to run into the same problems that retailers and alcohol do, which is they're confined by what they can sell in their, in their store for lack of it. Whereas we are able to sell across retailers mm -hmm. and even from suppliers directly if we so choose. So with Drizzly, we will always have the biggest selection. They will not be able to beat us on selection because of regulation and, and because they're a licensee, a retail licensee will be able to beat them on selection. Um, the second is that, and maybe like most important is that consumers, just like they go to Wayfair to buy furniture, because sure you can buy furniture on Amazon, but you, you prefer a, a vertical specific, uh, experience when you're going to buy furniture, they will be, they should be better at Wayfair should be better at telling you, you know, the exact, you know, not only dimensions, but how it looks, feels all the things very unique to furniture that Amazon will have a difficult time um, at scale across every vertical telling you, we believe the same sort of um, category and vertical expertise will exist in alcohol where consumers will think of Amazon as a potential option, but will hopefully come to Drizzly because we are best in class at selling alcohol. You will not get a better beer, wine and spirit shopping experience than you could possibly get on Drizzly. So we think it's both a, um, you know, the regulations that inhibit them as being a retailer now will constrict their pricing, their selection. And then additionally, the consumer mind share of, I want to buy from someone who can be best in class at that one thing. We're going to be best in class at beer, wine and spirits. And what's the, what's the future for Drizzly? Like what's uh, what do you, you know, see, you know, two, five years down the road for your company? 
Yeah. So we're going to keep building. We're going to keep building um, lots of really interesting tools for retailers in our space. So um, we've spent the better part of the last four or five years really building for the customer and have a, a pretty solid uh, customer facing experience. And not that we've neglected the retail side, but we haven't really dedicated our full force to building products for retailers. So we're going to be focusing in the next uh, two to three years on building really, really solid retailer technology for our beer, wine and spirits retailers, because the better their tools, the more of them we can get on the platform, the more retailers we can be servicing, the better experience for customers long-term. So uh, so our focus over the next couple of years is really to build up the retail side of the business so that customers can have the best shopping experience possible. And how many employees do you have? Yeah. So we're a little over 80 employees, wow. mostly based in Boston. Yep. And, uh, an office in New York and an office in Denver. And then a few people around the country. Now you've raised multiple rounds of venture capital. So what, what advice would you give to, especially first time founders that are looking to raise? Yeah. So the, uh, the hardest part about, uh, fundraising, especially as a first time founder and what I always encourage folks to do is to gain traction without any money. And even before you talk to people, Mm -hmm. so we didn't, um, we had some advice early on not to join mass challenge or Techstar. you know, even though we didn't really have a network, not to go that route. And to focus on building a business, focus on making money, focus on getting traction, focus on getting users, like all the, anything else that could distract you from that right now, keep that out of your mind. Like you shouldn't be worried about that. And, um, that was some of the best advice we got. And, and we didn't really have conversations with investors or anyone in the community, um, that could potentially be a source of capital until we had hit like $10,000 in sales through the platform. So, and we had, you know, people on Twitter and we had, you know, some press about, about the, the, the business. We didn't approach anyone until we had those things. And far too often I see first time founders saying, oh, I'm about to launch my product in three months. And I think I need to raise 750 K convertible note. It's like, don't, don't do scratch and claw, do anything you can to get in the market and prove some kind of traction before you go talk to investors. And did you get any pushback on trying to build a consumer business in Boston? That's always been like one of these things that just keeps kind yeah. of hanging on that I want it just to go away. But did you get any pushback as far as why are you building this in Boston? Go to New York or the Valley. Uh, yeah. And, you know, we had to entertain that. But at the end of the day, we said, this is this is our home. This is where we want to be. And for alcohol, back to kind of the regulated industry thing, like if you can make it in mass, as a B2C company in, in a regulated industry, you can make it anywhere across the country is truly the the thought process there. So the right uh, set of people that got on board eventually said, look, like just because there's not much B2C tech here, you know, let's use you guys as hopefully one of the pillar companies to to make us more of a B2C tech hub. We talked about your first sale, like your first true customer that came on and placed an order. But, but how do you build beyond that, right? Like how do you grow and scale where you get a million orders, right? Like that's phenomenal. So like, like, like I'm sure there was multiple channels that ultimately drove that consumer adoption, but you had to build a brand, you know, Drizzly, no one knew of it. You had to come up with the logo, um, you know, just 
start to build adoption in multiple markets, right? Not like you just double down and we're only focused in Massachusetts, right? So you're in all these markets. Like, how do you build a, a successful consumer business, you know, the, the whole acquisition side? Yeah. So it's much more sophisticated these days than it was uh, back then. But in the early days, it's some combination of uh, meeting the right people and telling a good story so that you can get in press. Some combination of because that's a really getting in 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 the public domain and having you know reputable folks write about you is is a stamp of approval. To um, hitting the street, you know, the amount of guerrilla mark, quote unquote, guerrilla marketing that I and Nick did back in the day was tremendous. So, it, you know, having that hitting the streets, passing out as many promo cards as you can, um, going to everything that you could possibly try to sponsor and having a table and a presence, all of those little things add up. And then early on, we had a, you know, relatively straightforward like digital marketing. Um, strategy. But as, as we started to scale up, we obviously started to get a lot more tactical and we now have, um, we now understand the power of out of home and sort of awareness marketing, albeit it's incredibly expensive, but that's how you really start to build a brand is being able to afford some of those channels. So we've been testing a lot of that in, in Boston over the last several years. And it, it shows, um, some, some sort of, top of funnel brand awareness success that um, we'll continue to double down on in the next few years. Was there any particular channel that was a surprise where you were just like, you know, when I, when I interviewed Chad Lawrence, a founder of Simply Safe, they had great success with uh, radio ads, right? And so any channels that were surprising as far as, um, you know, just, you know, the cost, but the value you're getting on the, on the opposite end? Um. I actually, well, so the ones that were the most surprising actually have been the free, the free channels. So mm -hmm. like we, we didn't completely understand the power of SEO early on. And when we really hired our first set of SEO, um, you know, sort of specialists that started to unlock the value of free Google users that are searching for beer, wine and spirits products. I mean, that, that was an inflection point in our ability to acquire consumers at scale and one that we're now building out into a, a pretty substantial team. And it's a, it's a, it's a significant focus of ours. Um, and to put some context on that, like I realized you type in the word beer, Drizzly comes up second to a Wikipedia page. Yeah. Like, yeah. That is phenomenal. SEO. Yeah. Like your team is killing it. They're killing it. And if you type in liquor, I think we're number one. And if you type in wine, we're like above wine.com. I think we're number three. So we're the, the value that SEOs bring to the company in the last couple of years has been phenomenal, but that's one that is, I'm sure you, it takes time, right? It takes time to build up the domain authority and to build, to build the links and to build the content and all that. So that that's one that is a significant driver for our business. Um, and then, but back in the day, the one that was really surprising was just PR, like getting PR. The fact that we could talk about alcohol delivery and we could have most major newspapers and news stations come cover us, for this little app that's launching in, you know, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and you know, we'll have all these camera crews there ready to interview us. That was one that we didn't expect at all. And the first market that we had the really, really strong PR uh, 
push was in Denver and we literally were on every single news station. We were in every newspaper for, you know, two or three days and that market took off as a result. So early days, it was the value of, of PR and telling a good story. These days, SEO is one that has been our most important acquisition channel, one that we continue to double down on in a big way. We talked about, you know, you're growing the team, uh, but as a, you know, first time founder or I guess, you know, scaling a company like you have been, what, uh, what advice would you give to um, entrepreneurs on, on hiring? Like things that maybe when you were first going about hiring employees that you're like, wow, if only I knew what I knew now. Um, suffice it to say that it, uh, that is the hardest thing about, about uh, running business isn't the acquisition channels or the you know retailer sales or this or that. Like it's, it's the people making sure you have the right people around the, around the table. So, um, I would say that the most important, uh, set of things you can do to make sure that you have the right team is get really strong referrals from both like advisors and from people inside the company and incentivize people to do that. Like the best employees that we've gotten and the best, you know, members of the team, while we have a phenomenal team here, usually come from referrals of advisors, mentors, you know, people internally that have worked with them in the past. Like that is our strongest source of, of talent. And, um, one that you, we, you know, you should do everything in your power to host networking events and to, um, to try to host things in your, uh, in your four walls to generate sort of, there's a really strong network in Boston. If you can get to the right set of people through referrals, you're going to, you're going to build a really strong team, which is what we've been fortunate enough to do. Who do you go to for advice or mentorship? Yeah. So, um, so plenty of people in, in the, in the community who started companies before, whether it's, uh, the guys from flip key back in the day who were early investors, TJ Mahoney and, yeah. and Jeremy Gall have been great. Um, uh, and, and some, some more folks on sort of the tech side and on the, on the angel side, but I actually find a lot uh, equally as, as much value in talking to funny enough, like liquor store owners who have built really, really big businesses in the liquor business, which is a, it's a hard one. It's a challenging one. Like in, in, you know, you kind of, to some extent, you know what to expect from the tech advice and the tech mentorship and that kind of, when you, when you break out into these other businesses, you learn things that you never thought you would realize or, or, or learn. So I've, I've had a lot of really valuable mentors in the liquor business itself. Um, and then just in businesses that aren't even in tech that are completely tangential to that. So I, I always encourage people to find sort of unusual mentors, ones that don't fit the mold, ones that don't seem to fit the bill of like the classic tech mentor or advisor, find someone kind of different in uh, some set of people that are different in, in different industries. That's great advice. Now, as far as other companies in the Boston tech scene, are there any that are on your radar? Any that, you know, kind of like what you think what they're doing is pretty interesting? Yeah. Um, there's one that sort of pops to mind that I have loved for a long time. This company called Dakwa, uh, who are based in Cambridge. And I just think what they're doing is really neat. They are, they actually probably hate that I'm even mentioning their name. Like they, uh, their their objective is to say completely below the radar, not make much noise about 
the really strong business that they're building mm -hmm. in a market that doesn't have any form of technology at all. So like I, you know, I, I understand what those, that team is up against. They're selling to marinas. Uh, if you don't know what DACWA is, they connect, they, they, a, they have a, a system by which marinas can, you know, it's essentially their POS system, a point of sale system for marinas to run a more efficient, uh, business because they're coming from pen and paper and, um, you know, Excel sheets, and they're bringing that now to a SaaS platform for built specifically for marinas. And then they allow boaters to book slips or moorings or whatever from these marinas. And they, they're building a really strong team. They've got a really interesting business model and they are intentionally staying like below the radar, uh, to build a really big business in the dark, if you will. So right. it's, it's kind of been fun to, to talk to those guys along the, over the years. Right. Sometimes it's good to keep a low profile so 100%. building at scale before other people latch on and yep. try to be it to the punch. Exactly. Great. They like the fact that the, the marina technology business isn't sexy. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's kind of their perspective on it. So. Well, that, so we had Eric Paley from Founder Collective on the podcast and he's, you know, his whole mantra is, you know, investing in like unglamorous industries, right? Like the company that he built was disrupting the dental industry, right? Yeah but very successful. Yeah. So, exactly. uh, yeah. No, it's uh, like, I, I do love, you know, we talked about, you know, obviously your company pill pack and DraftKings. you know, that Boston's taking the, the hard consumer companies on and building them at scale. So it's really exciting what's going on. There's so yeah. much happening. Yeah. It's fun. Well, Justin, thanks so much for joining us and for sharing all your words and wisdom and, and the whole background story of Drizzly. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I appreciate everything VentureFizz does in the community. So thank you. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.